Welcome back to Casting Call. I'm your host, Jonathan Goldstein. If you've listened to the past three episodes, you know the stakes of the game. If you haven't, stop and go back to the first episode so you aren't missing out. All right, so this summer, we teamed up with Squarespace to find the next great American podcast host. We're down to three finalists. Each has spent months immersed in the glamorous work of making a podcast pilot. The pilots are ready now, and in our final episode, which will drop in a few weeks, our judges will decide who has the best one. The winner will get their very own Gimlet miniseries. In this episode, you'll hear the pilot, The Final Say, from Deborah Jarvis. But before we dive in, we want to give you a little peek behind the curtain to see what it was like to make the show. Producer Julia Batero paired up with Deborah to help her make her pilot. So I'm going to hand it off to you, Julia. Thanks, Jonathan. So what what was it like staying with Deborah in Seattle? Uh, Seattle's wonderful in July. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was really great. Deborah was a great host. Yeah. She was really sweet and she cooked meals. So she was a good she was a good host to you in Seattle and she's a good podcast host. That's right. I'll tell you something. Before I was hired for this job as host, Alex Bloomberg, CEO of Gimlet Media, packed up his bags and told me that he was going to be staying at my place for the weekend to see what kind of a host I was before I could host his podcast. And I think I did pretty well. I mean, yeah, you made the cut. We had oatmeal in the morning. <laughs> he likes his oatmeal extra mushy. Ew. Yeah, I know. That's, that's really gross. Yeah, but it's what he likes, and it's a part of being a good host, a good house host and podcast host. All right, Julia, I'm going to hand it over to you. Thanks, Jonathan. You're very welcome. <laughs> Deborah came to this podcast with a lot of experience under her belt. She's an ordained minister who worked in hospices and hospitals for over 30 years. Throughout her career, she had a lot of conversations with people who were close to death. And those conversations basically helped people process their experience of dying. For Deborah, it's given her perspective on her own life. Now, Deborah wants to share these conversations. Here's a small part of the trailer she submitted to us. The Final Say is the podcast where I talk with the experts in dying, people who are facing death themselves. And we'll talk about all kinds of things, things that would for sure wreck a dinner party. Deborah would like death to be less scary for everybody. And in a lot of ways, this podcast is the next chapter of her life's work as a chaplain. I want it to be the best show. I do. I mean, and, and, you know, I have to tell you, when I tell people about it, they're like, holy cow, that's such a great idea. And, you know, ideas are a dime a dozen, and I know execution is key. She's right. Making a podcast is always hard. But this one posed an even more significant challenge. It's one thing for Deborah as a chaplain to have these kinds of conversations, but recording them for the world to hear is a whole other thing. And that's exactly what we set out to do. We kicked off production in early June. Deborah's based in Seattle, and I'm in Brooklyn. So we called each other almost every day to check in. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? Good. It's Monday. It's I know. It's Monday. I know. We agreed that whoever we talked to would have to be someone who felt comfortable with us coming into their homes during this difficult time. 
that would take a lot of trust. We also needed to spend hours with this person to do this conversation any justice, which meant they physically needed to be up to the task of talking for that long. And when you're really sick and close to death, it's hard to communicate with anyone. Deborah reached out to people she knew in Seattle. Together, we spoke to each one over the phone for about 20 minutes. Here we are, a week into our search. Gosh, how many of these have we done now? Five? We've done five. Wow. Five this week. Which I, this is pretty good for three days. I think it's damn good. Deborah's right. But it was also taxing. Because the thing is, we weren't just making a pilot. We were talking to people who were actually sick and dying. It was heavy and hard for all of us. Deborah told me that when she was working as a chaplain, she could only handle talking to about four people a day. I had no experience doing this before I started this project. At the end of each day, I was exhausted, emotionally. I let Deborah in on what was going on. Deborah, you, you'll think this is funny, but this weekend I had a dream that I was terminally ill and had to tell people. You did not. I did. I did. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. I think it's because I'm trying to think so much about how these people are feeling. And then. That's so interesting. As much as we were steeped in the process of trying to make the show, we hadn't actually found someone for the episode. For one reason or another, it felt like no one was right. Some people's health was declining. Other people were reluctant to open up on tape. A month passed of us trying to find the right person. And we started to fall behind schedule. In early July, our senior producer, Caitlin, checked in on us. Basically, we're, we're coming to the point where we need to be booking the characters for the pilots. Right. Um, we're, we're well on the way with the other two. This one, we, we need to kind of zero in on the character, okay. or we need to kind of rethink the strategy with the pilot. Okay. What's the, what's the deadline for um, choosing a person? I think it would be really nice to do that by Friday. Oh, okay. By Friday. Yeah, no pressure there. Okay. <laughs> but there was pressure. We needed to make this pilot. We started going back through the list of people we'd spoken to to see if there was anyone we'd overlooked. There was one name we kept returning to, Bob Fitzgerald. He was a friend of Deborah's who she's visited regularly. We'd spoken to him early in the process and initially felt like he was the perfect person. Not only was he charming and warm, he also agreed that it was important to talk openly about dying. Dying is not a popular issue. And uh, I don't know that we... We know how to talk about that with each other. Uh, and maybe we, maybe we need some help with that. At first, we ruled Bob out because he was only strong enough to talk for 30 minutes at a time. We didn't want to put too much strain on him. But the more we thought about it, the more we realized 30 minutes might be all we need. So my thought is, Let's go with Bob. Deborah and I agreed. It felt like once we'd made that decision, a huge weight was lifted. We checked in with our editor, Devin, before I flew out to Seattle. It sounds like you two have been kind of planning things. Do you want to catch me up a bit? 
So we're cooking up all kinds of things, nice. Devin, and um, <clears throat> it mostly has to do with uh, parties here in Seattle. <laughs> We've pivoted <laughs> to parties. Come to. <laughs> so we're like podcast smodcast. Yeah. We want to have fun and get out of that hot armpit of New York City. I think that's the Hell right call. Yeah, um, please. Oh my God. <laughs> One of the big things Deborah has learned from this work is that you need to enjoy life. And Deborah really knows how to have fun. So on this trip, she was teaching me something new. How to balance this type of sad, heavy work with taking time to laugh and celebrate. So I flew out west, and we talked to Bob. What follows is that conversation. After the break, Deborah Jarvis with Bob Fitzgerald in The Final Say. This episode of Casting Call is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build a beautiful website. I'm Deborah Jarvis, host of The Final Say. I'm here today with Gimlet Media producer, Julia Botero. Together, we worked hard to make the pilot episode of my podcast, but our work is not over yet. Julia's helping me to do one last thing. Okay, so let's say we're making a website for your podcast, The Final Say. Have you thought about any of the visual images you'd use for this? I don't want to do kind of the cliche thing like clouds and, you know, coffins and hospital rooms. I want it to be colorful. I don't want it to look like a circus, but I don't want it to look like a hearse. So, colorful hearse. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'm getting a little punchy. Fortunately, with Squarespace, you can use their beautiful templates and custom domains to create a perfect website for any project, no matter how punchy you get. To build your next website in just minutes, head over to squarespace.com slash casting call for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, you get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain when you use the promo code casting call. Again, get 10% off when you use the promo code CASTINGCALL. I think that's pretty cool. And now, the final say. You've just made a wonderful choice, one you won't regret, I promise. You've just chosen to listen to a conversation about death. Most people get squirrely about death. But that's not all we'll talk about, because we'll also be talking about life. We can't talk about death without talking about life. I'm Deborah Jarvis, and you're listening to The Final Say, Conversations with People Facing Death. I'm a former hospital and hospice chaplain, and over the course of this podcast, I'll be talking to people who are facing their own deaths. And, you know, not in the way that we're all facing death, you know, an abstract idea— These are people who know they have only months or weeks or even days left. These are people who are looking back at the life they've lived and what, if anything, lies ahead.
Over my years working as a chaplain, I talked to a lot of people who were facing death, and these were my favorite conversations because I found that people who were closest to death were the ones that taught me the most about life. People like Bob Fitzgerald. Hello. We're a tiny bit early. Man. Hi, Helen. Hello. Bobster. Hi. You're here. You're here, too. Today I'm visiting Bob and his wife Helen at their apartment in a retirement community in downtown Seattle. I brought along my producer, Julia. You look very familiar, both of you. (laughs) You're Julia. Yes, fist pump. I love it. I know Bob from University Congregational Church in Seattle. Like me, he's an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, the UCC. Can I give you a hug? And you're Deborah. I want to give you a hug. Oh, oh I'll give old, you a hug. You're my old friend. Oh, my friend. You're my friend. It's so good to see you again. Bob is thinner than I've ever known him. I find him sitting in a recliner in the living room, and next to him on a TV tray is a plate of saltines, a box of tissues, and one of those big days-of-the-week pill boxes. How's it going? Oh, I need to tell you, I'm kind of weak. Are you? It's kind of slow. Okay. I don't know whether it's this early morning hour at 10 o'clock or not. Does this feel early to you? No, this is a great time, but I just, I find any possible reason I can think of other than the real one. Yeah. And the real reason Bob feels weak is because he has lymphoma. He's managed to beat it back for about 12 years. But it's catching up to him. He's in hospice now. He might have only a few months left. How old are you, Bob? 91. 91? 91. Holy cow. Okay. Holy cow. I was off by like 20-something years. No. I want to think he's in his 70s. No, thank you. (laughs) Helen gets a big laugh over there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I married an older woman. (laughs) We get along fine. (laughs) Well, and it seems like you're both kind of living your lives right now. Yeah. I mean, I would always say to my hospice patients that you're living, you're living, you're living, you're living until that moment when you exhale and you don't inhale. Yeah. It's all living. Yeah, it's live just, until you die. Yeah. Now, I'm, I think that's a struggle because I'm, I'm struggling right now, see, with my weakness. Mm-hmm. This is not fun. It's very hard to realize that the things that I used to do, I'm passing on to someone else, and particularly to Helen. That's what you do when you're this age and you're not very healthy. Bob is used to being active. He's the kind of person who can make everyone in the room break out in laughter, who, when he tells a story, he tells it with his whole body. I've watched him preach and bring an entire sanctuary to the edge of their seats. Whether he was preaching, traveling, or just doing something simple like going to the movies, Bob always brought so much energy to it. But now, he mostly just moves between his recliner and his bed. So how has this been for you, my coming over here and talking to you about... This has been very uh, meaningful to me. I appreciate your doing that. I'm not sure you realize how much I think about it between our conversations. Thinking. 
That's something Bob can do. It's what I call an inside job. It forces you to look inward about what's going on and pay attention to some stuff that you, you did off and on through the years and uh, you, you tend to live in memories. So if anybody is 40 or 50 years old, boy, this is a good time to get some good memories going. Do some things that you're gonna wanna look back on and uh, enjoy. And that's part of what I spend a lot of time doing. I've seen this a lot. In their final days, people spend a lot of time looking back on their lives. Sometimes that means regrets. I have sat with a lot of people whose final days are filled with cataloging the things they should have said or should have done. That can be heartbreaking. But that's not Bob's story. Bob is spending his days thinking of times where he felt great love. One of those times was back in the 1980s when his son Randy was a teenager. Bob was driving him to work. I picked him up and uh, drove downtown to a movie theater where he was uh, on staff. And uh, I was uh, driving 65 miles an hour going south. I can relive that just as clear as possible. And he asked me, Dad, what would you say if I told you I was gay? And there was a big lull and sort of a delayed response. It was a total blank. There, there was a lot of silence. There was just a lot of silence. And then I said, I, you're my son, I love you. And I saw his tears. I just joined. And then, um, seriously, every time I tell this, I cry. And it's a crying of, of joy. That's what it is. I mean, I'm just reminded of uh, the, the joy that that meant, that he trusted me to, to tell me. And I was the first one in the family he told. So this is my crying rag. <laughs> this, is, this is an old washcloth. An old washcloth, but it's very soft and curly. And I had to cry a lot. <laughs> about all kinds of things, both both sad and happy. That's who I am. That's great. And it looks very absorbent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very proud of this trigger. <laughs> well used. Bob has always been an emotional guy. After a really good sermon, sometimes I'd see him wiping his eyes. I'd never heard the story about his son Randy, though. I know this must have been really difficult for Randy, especially back then. I would say I didn't know any gays or lesbians, and then I quickly discovered, wait a minute, there's people that you know very well, they just haven't told you they're gay or lesbian, and you're just ignorant. It's just sticking my head in the sand. And then all of a sudden I discovered the biggest enemy of gays and lesbians has been the Christian church. And I was a part of the Christian church. And I thought, oh, I want to help. I want to help do something about it. So that's what got me in the P flag. 
Tell us again what PFLAG stands for. Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays. That was a really gratifying time in your life. It was. It was very... I can tell. Very uh, exciting, challenging, and uh, I felt like we were right on the front line. Right on the front line. That was early on, and there was a lot to be done. And my life has been better and richer for it. So uh, this, this was a contribution to me. Made me more humane. Made me more like a human being. Made me more real. Wow. Made me more Christian, religious, spiritual. A friend of mine who works here, Melissa, we pass you know, little thoughts of the day to be back and forth to each other. And one of her that she gave me recently was, the meaning of life is to find the gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. Whoever came up with that? Some of the uh, ex experiences of my life where I've been with people who were all giving their gifts away and making the world better. I was wanting to be part of something bigger and more important. And uh, here was it was right there, right there in my own family. Family comes up a lot for Bob, especially now because he's thinking about leaving them. I got to get my crying towel out here. Uh, when someone dies, now the person who dies loses themselves as well as their family. That's a double whammy. So I'm losing me. Well, let me ask you about that. So what are your beliefs on what happens after death? I mean, are you sure oh, that I... you're losing you? Or I mean, what do you, what do you believe about that? Uh, over a period of my lifetime, I've probably had uh, a half a dozen different beliefs. So you'd, you'd get a different answer in different periods of my life. I think it's part of the comfort for me to leave it as a mystery. That's, that's to me, a comfort. And uh, part of the excitement will be to find that out. I, I, my big answer is, be ready for a surprise. What would bring you comfort, or what brings you comfort now? What brings me comfort in dying is that it won't be painful. I've had people tell me there's uh, ways to make it not painful, because that's a fear. I'm also comforted by knowing that Helen and my family know I love them and that they love me. One day, Helen and I were talking and she just said, I'm going to plan to meet you in the mystery of the great beyond. And my mouth just dropped open. I thought, Helen, where did you get that? I find that great comfort. I'm not, I'm not saying it's definite. I'm not saying it's for everybody. I'm not saying it's an answer. It has an amazing power of affection.
dying is a lonely experience. It's like giving birth. You know, you can have people all around you, but ultimately, you alone are pushing out that baby. Bob and Helen can make promises to meet in the mystery of the great beyond, but for now, Bob will be heading there alone. What strikes me is how at peace he seems with it all. And he can trace the reason he feels at peace now back to a single moment from decades ago. In 1982, Helen and I went to Europe that uh, taught me uh, a lot about my place on Earth. And it was in the island of Iona, and we ended up on top of this mountain. It was just a stunning, beautiful day. Blue sky, quiet. We could see the water all around the island. There was a slight breeze, as I remember. There were cattle and sheep in the field. It's a very pastoral scene. I looked around and I just was overwhelmed and overcome by, I'm just standing on one little part of the earth and it's inhabited by people all around. And we're part of each other. And uh, we're part of all this creation. Well, I've carried that around with me ever since. And uh, it nurtures me now. It nurtures me to face dying. That helps me when I'm uh, confronted with the uh, loneliness of this experience, of being alone and being unknown. So it helps me realize that this has been going on for millions of years. And I'm, I'm part of that creation now. But it also has a, a sort of a cutting edge to it because it, it means I have to also say goodbye. And we all join the stuff of the universe, and there we are. And that's comforting as well as challenging. What's the challenging part? Well, I don't want to say goodbye. Uh, that's, that's the hard part. It's, it's an existential reality that there is a goodbye. There's no way out of that. That's what makes it existential. That's what makes it sacred to me. Bob doesn't want to say goodbye, but he will. It could be weeks or days from now. Or maybe by the time you're hearing this, he could be gone. But for now, he's filling his days with family and friends. And also, a lot of poetry. I read this poem by Mary Oliver. She's such a poet and such a blessing. But she's a tough woman. Now, I don't know a lot about her, but I, I've gathered that people think she's really hot stuff. <laughs> and uh, I've learned that she's hot stuff. So, this is a poem called When Death Comes by Mary Oliver. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut. When death comes like the measle pox. When death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades. 
I want to step through the door. If there was one poem in the world that I could pick for Bob to read, it would be this one. It so perfectly captures what I think all of us want to feel at the end of our lives, that we didn't sit it out, but we're out there moving to the music and doing our own unique dance. When it's over, I want to say all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. Isn't that a fabulous poem? Yes. And... uh it helped me because not only am I was struggling with uh, all the uncertainty and the unknown, but also with all the blessings mm-hmm. and uh, all the good things that are part of being alive. So it means I'm still living. <laughs> right. I'm still living. And while I'm... Uh, Still living, I'm alive. And uh, over the weekend, I wrote a response. I wrote my poem. I want to hear your fabulous poem now. Her poem, When Death Comes, inspired me. So this is my response to Mary Oliver. And thank you, Mary. I want to be ready for my final pilgrimage. And knowing I have left word with all my loved ones, I love you. In my heart, I want to know the peace of being forgiven and forgiving. I will remember the joys, but will have shared my tears of grief, letting go and saying goodbye. When all is over, I want to be ready to be surprised at what next? Surprised by God, God's or nothing, or mysteries I never even thought of. Mostly, I want to feel the peace of the final breath of my meditation and end with a thank you. The thing is, sharing our joy is easy. Sharing our grief is hard because then we're vulnerable. But that is what makes us fully human. That is what connects us. 
That is what heals us. And nothing can make us feel more vulnerable than talking about death. Like Bob, I want to be ready to be surprised at what next. And also like Bob, I want to end with a thank you. So, thank you. Thanks for listening to The Final Say Pilot, part of the Casting Call series from Squarespace and Gimlet Creative. Please vote by visiting castingcallshow.com and vote for your favorite pilot. This episode was produced by Julia Botero and me, Deborah Jarvis, with help from Max Gibson and Jorge Estrada. Our senior producer is Caitlin Boguki. Our editor is Devin Taylor. This episode was mixed by Katherine Anderson and Peter Leonard. Deep gratitude to Bob Fitzgerald and Helen Bereiter for opening their hearts and their home to us. Thanks also to Bill Bailey, Susan Briscoe, Susan Tower, Shotzi Weisberger, and the late, great Hal Pelton. Oh, one last thing. Everyone needs a crying towel. Something soft and absorbent.